And you know, if you're looking for a passage in all of the Bible to challenge society, you won't find one better than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Uh, at the same time, if you're looking for a passage in all of the Bible that can strengthen society, you won't find one better than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 as well. And that's simply because it deals with two things that society cannot survive without, and that is the church and gender, right? And, and so it makes a lot of sense that in these letters we affectionately call the pastoral epistles, both of those are being discussed. If you recall uh, from our study of chapter one, the church in Ephesus was being bombarded by false teaching, and that false teaching, according to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, it was spreading like gangrene, and it was undermining the biblical view of both of those things, the church and gender. And it just wasn't the men who were going off the rails. We spent the entirety of chapter one talking about the false teachers that were in the church doing these things, and, and particularly Paul called out, you remember in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, the women were falling prey to it as well, and this needed to be corrected quickly. And this brings us to our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter two. So in these eight verses, what I want to do is address quickly, at least the first point, Paul's words to divisive men. We see that in verse 8. And then Paul's words to distracting women, verses 9 and 10. And then finally, Paul's words about our distinct roles as men and women. And as Paul does this, to help us navigate through this, I want to draw your attention to three really important concepts to understand what's happening in this passage. Number one, to discuss a, a principle of interpretation that's really important. Then I'm going to give you a reminder from creation, which then really leads to the prohibition, prohibition for women that, that probably everyone's dying for me to get to. So um, just hold your horses. We'll get to that. But, but before we jump into this uh, passage, I really want to strongly encourage you sometime this week to download or watch a, a presentation I gave on this, very similar, and the presentation I did at our, our, our conference a few years ago on human sexuality, and the name of the message was The Purpose of Gender and the Glory of God. There is just so much to this issue of gender and manhood and womanhood that, that if I really jumped into all of that, I actually really wouldn't deal with the text in front of us. And so because I want 1 Timothy 2 to speak to us on its own terms and Paul's issue in this church in its own way, I'm going to let that message carry a lot of the heavy lifting for me. So because I, I want us to deal with what we're seeing here in our passage, but I'm so aware of the almost loadedness, the questions people might have, because this is a relevant issue, and God's Word speaks to all the issues that matter. So if you have some time, you can either li listen to it or get a podcast or watch the video. I think the presentation is like 40 minutes, and it's something I think most people don't even think about especially in our culture today, that gender has a purpose, and that purpose is directly related to God's glory. So I'll leave that to your own time, but for now, let's jump into the passage at hand, 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8, and you see it starts with Paul's words to divisive men. You recall last week, Paul was instructing the church about prayer, right? Who should, be, who should we be praying for? Why should we be doing it? And here, verse 8, Paul kind of tells them how they should be doing it, and Paul particularly zeroes in on the men, apparently about their anger and their quarreling. 
So I guess it's the case that prayer meetings in the church at Ephesus were quite the event, along with supplications and intercessions. You might have had some right hooks or haymakers going on, right? I mean, there probably was a violent situation. Who knows? If you've ever been to Middle Eastern culture, they are a passionate people. I could see these things kind of happening. James chapter 4, he alludes to the fact that there was so much friction in the church that there was a lot of anger going on, possibly physical anger. Now, you might say that is an argument from silence, and I grant you, we, we don't see, we don't know for sure that they were going fisticuffs in the church, but if you just read through the pastorals, the, these, these, these letters of Paul, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, I mean, the picture's pretty bleak. The false teaching that is spreading led to meaningless discussions, vain speculations, twice they were quarreling about words, envy, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 4. So it wouldn't surprise me, given the passionate people and all of this friction, that occasionally prayer meetings might get a little um, physical. Rather than lifting up your hands like it's some kind of fight club, Paul says, lift up holy hands in prayer. Holy hands being lifted up is a reference to a posture of worship and a symbol of a clean heart. Well, why do you say that? Well, we see that in the Scriptures. Look at Psalm 24. The psalmist asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who will stand in His holy place? This is an important question to ask, an important question to answer. How do we basically be in God's presence? It is He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully that clean hands and a pure heart. You recall James chapter 4, when he's talking about the contentions in the church, references this very same psalm. Clean hands, pure heart, they go together one to the other. Isaiah 1.15 says this, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In ancient Israel, the way they would pray is they would lift up their hands and lift their eyes up because they believed that the presence of God was in the heavens, and they would open their hands to show that I'm innocent of clean blood, here I am. And Paul is saying it is pointless to raise your hands to God symbolically or otherwise if they're stained by sin, by anger, by quarreling, right? The way we pray, we don't pray this way. We actually pray this way, and that comes probably more from Middle English, medieval times, where a sign of respect was to bow your head and to present your neck, that if you did anything wrong, your neck could come off. That's partly where our modern ideas of praying in Western civilization comes from this. But in the Middle East, if you go there today, they open their eyes to the heavens and they raise their hands in prayer. This is also why sometimes we raise our hands in worship. It's the same idea. I'm presenting myself. My hands are clean. Here I am. Psalm 24 instructs us that the one who can come into the presence of God is the one who knows that they are forgiven and cleansed by God. More and more to the point, they live and they pray from that posture. By way of application, friends, how easy it is for us to come into corporate worship without having done this good business first. The business of receiving God's forgiveness, of reveling in that mercy and living out, moving out from that point of grace. Paul says, I desire then that in every place Christ Community Church included there, the men should pray, 
lifting holy hands. Friends, I just I want to make a point of application quickly here. Friends, take time to prepare yourselves before you come before the Lord. Right? It, it, is, it is so easy in our day and age to just kind of rush into church and be so kind of confuddled and all these things on our hearts and minds, and, and you're, you're just not getting anything from the corporate gathering. Friends, if, if that is you, you've been coming to church for a couple years and you just don't seem to be getting anything out of it, can I suggest to you that maybe it's the way that you attend church? I don't mean physically attend, but how you attend it when you are actually here right? You're just so busied and hurried and rushed. Maybe you were up late Saturday night, so you didn't hear the alarm go off Sunday morning, and and you kind of rush into church, grab a bulletin, sit down, we're already into the service, and and you're missing most of what's happening, and you can't receive. Can I just recommend for you, prepare for Sunday by preparing earlier. And I know if you've got kids, kids of all ages can make it challenging. I, I get that. Whether they're young or whether they're old, they can present their challenges. In an age like ours, where increasingly we think Sunday is like every other day, and if you're a Christian, it's not, right? We call it the Lord's Day for a reason. In an increasingly post-Christian culture, we can think Sunday's like our day and treat it as such. But it has been our practice for two millennia around the globe to set aside Sunday because it's the only day, friends, think about it, and we are on the tail end of it. For almost 24 hours, the church has been gathering to bring worship to God. The people that God has called out of the world have been gathering to do business with God, to hear from His Word, to worship together, to sing His worthiness, and to do the work of the church. It is not like any other day. Go to bed earlier on Saturday or wake up earlier on Sunday, right? Something as simple as just picking out what you're going to wear Saturday night saves you some headache Sunday morning, right? Just, if that's not your thing, just make use of the sung worship time. Friends, Adam and the team, they're not in the back just kind of going, what do you want to sing? I don't know. Let's sing this. Let's sing this and go. They are deliberately thinking, Adam's deliberately thinking of the gospel so that you might sing that and be prepared. Do you realize music is the, I can't think of anything as emotional and and intellectual as good praise music and hymns. Something powerful, friends, when our emotions and our intellect combine. It transforms our volition, right? Man, get in on that. It is so easy, because I can do it too, to just sit and sing and be disengaged. Make use of that time. Guys, another thing you can do possibly, we don't see this very much at all, but you older saints remember, before church service started, there was something called a prelude, right? And there used to be somebody in an organ just playing organ music, right? Well, the reason they did that, friends, was that they could collect themselves and be prepared for worshiping the Lord. Now, that's a form form we no longer practice, but that doesn't mean you can't still prep yourself to do this great work of receiving forgiveness and grace so that when you lift up your hands, they are acceptable to the Lord. But let's back, get back to the church at Ephesus. It's not simply the men that can make the corporate gathering difficult as they were not spiritually prepared. The women weren't much better. They were only physically focused. Look at verse 9. This is why Paul says, likewise, so you men, stop arguing, stop having lifting your hands in anger. But likewise, women, I have an issue to talk to you. The men are being divisive, but you ladies are being distracting. 
Look at verse 9 and 10, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. I love how Paul is addressing an action that stems from an attitude. He says, that's not the way it should be, and he gives an example of what it should be like, right? So the attitude, there was a lack of discretion and modesty, and the the, the action that it showed from was the way they presented themselves, and Paul says, no, 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 be rather like this. That's pretty straightforward. You don't need to know Greek to understand that that's what Paul's point is. While it's impossible to know with 100% certainty, it's pretty clear that some of the false teaching that was making its way through the church was turning over the God-ordained roles and ideas of manhood and womanhood. Let me give you a sample from just the pastoral epistles where we draw this from. Look at 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3. This teaching was the forbidding of marriage, which was the natural context for manhood and womanhood to come together this way. They were seeking mere physical appearance and their good looks and seeking physical pleasures above all else. 2 Timothy 3, pride, arrogance, and abuse mark them. These were clearly contrary to the humble, servant-hearted care and submissiveness mandated of biblical manhood and womanhood, seen most beautifully in Ephesians 5 of husbands and wives. We go on, 1 Timothy chapter 5 really is loaded down. There was this abandoning the care of the family. 1 Timothy 5, 14, 15, women casting off the privilege and responsibility of the home. This is what God's Word teaches. It is clear that these women, although a part of the Ephesian church here, they were not being transformed by the gospel as much as they are being transformed by this other teaching. And it was literally plain to see. The way they presented themselves, Paul says this is becoming apparent, and he addresses it. Now, at this point, I need to introduce you to a principle of interpretation because it's very relevant here and it's very important. And that is the principle that we talk about. Um, I don't think we talked about this in our Pillars of Truth class in our Disciple Makers curriculum because I just came up with these terms uh, this week. But the idea is there. So the principle of interpretation, I call it the, historical, the universal historical rule or the cosmic cultural rule. So I just want, this is brand new, so I'm just going to let it digest with you there for a second. What that's talking about is that um, there's a universal truth rooted in a historical reality, or there's a cosmic truth rooted in a cultural reality, however you want to look at that, and that's all through the Bible. And this is one of the reasons, friends, that the Bible is such an amazing book. Think about it. The infinite mind of God communicating to the finite minds of men and women. The cosmic decrees of God given in the cultural context of men and women. The universal reign of God crashing into the historical realm of men and women. What I'm getting at is that God never just hollers out truths to us apart from our context. Every story, every reality of the Scripture that comes from God is embedded in a historical, cultural reality. 
That's what makes it so beautiful. That's what makes it so applicable to us. This is why the Bible has, says something to say on everything that matters, everything from nuclear disarmament to selective genetic surgery. The Bible has principles to guide us. Now you say, wait a minute, those words don't appear in the Bible. Of course not. Because if the Bible had to use every word we use, you know how big this thing would be, right? There's an issue of principle and example I'm getting at. That the Bible gives us every principle we need to understand, and it often exemplifies that in the historical setting that then we extrapolate and live our lives based on. Because if that's not true, then what point is there in studying the Bible? More importantly, the Bible says this of itself. Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of you Bible scholars, you know it, right? All Scripture is what? Inspired by God. Literally, the Greek means it's breathed out. It comes out of his mouth. It is inspired by God, and because of that, it's profitable for our training, our teaching, our correction, our rebuke when necessary, so that the man or woman's equipped for every good work, right? 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 says the same thing, that everything we need to live lives of godliness has been given to us in the knowledge of Christ, so whether it's nuclear disarmament or a selective genetic surgery, or if you're a plumber, God's Word guides you how to be a better plumber. No, it's not going to talk about, you know, uh, an elbow joint or how you solder copper piping, but it's going to talk about how you be a man of integrity as you are a plumber or a woman, as the case might be, right? That's what makes the Bible so amazing. But that's also what makes it kind of challenging, because we have these universal uh, cosmic decrees and truths and principles, and they're always embedded in a historical cultural context, and our history and culture always change, and sometimes rapidly. And so that's what can kind of make it a little bit challenging. Does everybody understand what I'm saying here? Does, am I following? I'm not losing you, am I? So we have these historical, or excuse me, universal cosmic truths embedded in historic cultural reality, and that's why this book is so amazing. And verses 9 and 10 are a great example of these two coming together. So I want to take the opportunity to help you learn this interpretive principle because it bears on what we're talking about. So the question we have to ask is, what is the universal cosmic truth that Paul is talking about in verse 9 and 10? Okay, look at it, read it. Think about it, the universal cosmic truth that he's trying to promote, modesty, self-control, godliness, right? What's the historical cultural context? Their apparel, braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. Do you see those two coming out? They're both right there. There's these universal truths in a cultural context. And here's the thing that's really important, very important. You make a huge mistake when you confuse one for the other, and people do this kind of thing all the time. So, friends, just let me use a, a, a maybe more uh, lighthearted illustration. What happens if you think that modesty and self-control are only historical cultural values that Paul encourages, that modesty and godliness, those things aren't really important, and, and, and modesty, the way you show up to church, what would happen? We would have churches where all the guys would be looking like beefcakes and the women would dress like hot mamas because you're looking to impress with your form or your figure, looking for that date or a new spouse, right? The church would be a meat market, right? <laughs> now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, I know churches like that. You know, don't, don't go there. I meant, I meant mentally don't go there, but yes, physically don't go there either, right? You don't want to go to that kind of church, right? That's my, my, my point is, 
That's a big mistake. Now, what would happen, friends, if you think braiding your hair, nice clothing are the universal cosmic truth that Paul is condemning, that we shouldn't wear nice clothing and take care of ourselves? What would happen? We would all come to church looking ugly and dressed funny, right? I mean, that's what we would do. We say, well, we can't look this nice. We have to downplay our looks. You see the big problem when we mistake one for the other, and people do this all the time. Right? They, they confuse what's the universal cosmic principle that God is trying to show us and teach us, and what's the historic cultural example that's in the Scripture. And we've got to parse these out so we can live in obedience to the right thing. Friends, another mistake that people make, and it happens with this very passage in the modern culture, is that people tend to think, oh, it's just all history and culture, so there's no universal cosmic truth that applies to us. We can ignore all that stuff, effectively saying that God's Word does not speak to us today. On the other hand, there are those who say, well, it's all universal and cosmic truth, and none of our history or culture matters, effectively saying that God's Word doesn't understand our experience today. Both of these make God's Word irrelevant to us, both of those extremes. But when you can hold the balance together, you realize there are eternal truths that can always guide us in our place and time. Regardless of when we live or where we live, God's Word can speak to us. And that's what we have happening here. So let's go back to the interpretation of verse 9 and 10. And by the way, this principle carries all the way through to verse 15 and through the entirety of Scripture. Now, verse 9 and 10, Paul is teaching against the false doctrine that is causing women to adorn themselves in manners that spoke in their history and culture of casting off their God-given roles, seeking to establish a new or different order than the one that God had ordained. The issue, friends, is not pearls or braided hair or gold or expensive clothing. The issue is that these items in their cultural context Speak to, the cast, speak to them casting off their calling in Christ, as 1 Peter, and 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 3, an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. You see, the same kind of issue was perpetuated in many other churches. You see this in the Corinthian churches in 1 Corinthians, and apparently even Peter, Peter was dealing with that in his churches. And he reminds the women of the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, Peter is not saying that a godly woman is some kind of ho-hum wallflower church mouse, just gentle and quiet, right? I, mean, I know some women who you would, some godly women that you would not describe as gentle or quiet at all, right? At least initially, but when you know them, it is their posture and their heart towards the Lord that is clearly this imperishable beauty of gentleness and quietness, especially in contrast to a crassness and, and a rough demeanor and that kind of, you go kind of attitude, right? That, that is not happening. I'm glad this kind of covers most of that action. That was spontaneous. But <laughs> so what they're talking about is that in the Ephesian church, these women were imbibing values that were casting off the God-ordained roles of manhood and womanhood, and it was starting to cause problems within the church. And that leads us to verses 11 through 15. This is the part people get really interested in. And let's talk about Paul's words to the distinct roles of men and women in verses 11 through 15. 
Now, before we jump in, I gave you a principle of interpretation. Now, let me give you a reminder from creation, and I think that's appropriate because Paul actually goes there in verses 13 and 14. We'll look at that in a little bit. So, I think this reminder from creation is important. Here's the first reminder. God created men and women with equal dignity. The teaching of the image of God in man that is clearly established in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, establish this equal dignity of the sexes clearly, right? Paul in the New Testament reinforces this in Galatians 3.28. He says, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, we are all on the equal footing at the cross. So we need to be very clear that the Bible teaches that men and women share equally in dignity and our value. Therefore, to demean or devalue any man or any woman is a sin against God. Before, it's a sin against even against them, believe it or not. That's very clear. To demean or devalue a man or a woman, any man or any woman, is sin. And if that is your pattern, if that is your humor, if that's the cultural tips you've picked up, you need to repent and stop that. Women, do not talk badly about your men. Men, do not talk badly about your women. It's we speak and honor each other, right? And I'm thankful. I, I can't think of any example, nor, nor would I, like, use someone as an example, but I'm grateful that I don't hear that kind of stuff happening in our, in our church context. I'm very grateful for that. As a matter of fact, I, I hear many of our women honoring their men, and, and I'm really grateful of that. And I hear the same of our men honoring women. That's the way we ought to be because that is the right thing to do. We're made in that image of God. Yet, yet, God created man and woman with complementary roles, not identical roles. Very important. In other words, friends, created totally equally, created totally differently. Created totally equally, created totally differently. Both of these are crucially important. If you get one of those wrong, you get the confusion about gender we see raging in our culture now. And by the way, that's raged in our culture as human beings. Today, we might be getting wrong this concept. We might be just focusing on the totally created equal. And so we said, there's no difference. So let's get all the distinctions. Let's just get rid of them because we're totally equal. We're going to have a bunch of errors from that. Historically, we probably made the error of just focusing on how we're totally different. So we're going to have completely different standards for men and women because we're completely different. You see, this is where a biblical worldview is always helpful. There is no tension to saying that we are totally equal, yet totally different. And the best way and the quickest way to explain this dynamic, friends, is to look at God himself. God the Father and God the Son are 100% equal in essence, in glory, in purpose, and in being, both worthy of worship, both worthy of praise, both equal in the same way, yet at the same time, God the Father is not God the Son. And God the Son is not God the Father. Each have very different roles, each have very different functions, and each are very distinct from one another and the way they relate to one another. 
The Father always leads the Son. The Son always submits to the Father in redemption. The Father always plans. The Son always executes. The Father always sends the Son, and the Son is the one who is sent. As image bearers of God made in His image, human beings are similar. In our humanness, we are the same. In essence, 100% equal. And yet, being male and female, our engenderedness, we could not be more different physically, biologically, psychologically, and functionally. And that is exactly the point that Paul is making here in 1 Timothy 2. When it comes to leading the church, and, 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 and we could make the case as well, when it comes to leading the family, and those are very important qualifiers, teaching God's universal cosmic truths in a historical cultural context, men and women by God's design have different functions. And so this leads us to the last concept the prohibition for women in verse 12. Now, before we deal with that, let's look back at verse 11. Paul says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And Lori and I were talking last night, she was asking about this morning's message, and says, in our culture, we choke, we stumble over the phrase, with all submissiveness. They got that down, there's no problem. What they choked on the phrase was when Paul said, let a woman learn. This just goes to show how much our culture really forms our way of reading Scripture. We, get, we, we, we believe, yeah, women should learn, of course, with all submission. Wait a minute. They had it exactly reversed. So what I'm going to zero in on is that phrase, with all submissiveness, for a couple of reasons. Number one, the injunction to learn quietly can apply to all both men and women. It's not like you women, you learn quietly and don't say a word, and you guys, you can cut up and pass gas or whatever. It's cool, right? I mean, that's, that's not what's going on here. Learning, for it to happen, needs to be in a kind of distraction-free zone where you can focus. So the injunction to learn quietly is something that applies to all of us. Now, particularly in Ephesus, the phrase, with all submission, or her learning quietly was the way she displayed her submissiveness, but that can still be extend to all of us, right? Secondly, I'm not going to talk about her, uh, whether or not a woman should learn, because we no longer question that at all, rightly so. And please realize that a big part of the reason that we do not question whether or not a woman should learn in the West is because of the elevated place that women have received from a biblical worldview. I mean, if you don't realize that, you don't know history. Friends, you can look at all, many of the ancient cultures, whether it's Greek, whether it's Roman, um, and we actually do see it in Hebrew culture as well. Not only were women not permitted to, were not encouraged to learn, they were not permitted to learn. You look today, in just about every country where there isn't a significant Christian influence, certainly any Islamic country, women are in dire straits. Look at the, think of the, the ungodly, horrific practices of Chinese foot binding so that the woman would sway a certain well, sway a certain way to appeal to a man's sexual desire, or the Hindu practice of suti, where a widow must throw herself on the funeral pyre of her deceased husband, or she's unworthy or female circumcision. 
These are horrific atrocities against women. And two of those three, Suti, the practice of Suti has been outlawed in India because of a Christian influence. This is not my opinion. This is historical record. Chinese foot binding was banned because of the missionary influence. Female circumcision, unfortunately, is still practiced in about 26 African Middle Eastern countries. But two of the three atrocities have been destroyed because of a Christian worldview. All that to say is the reason we, we don't dis- doubt why a woman should learn is because of a Christian worldview. That's just, there's, there's no argument there. So let me get back to the text. So let's talk about this phrase, with all submissiveness, because that's where we kind of feel like, oh, a little punch in the gut here. The word for submission that Paul uses here is a common word in the New Testament, and that word regulates all submissive relationships to all authority. So what I'm saying is, what Paul is saying here is a common word, a common concept used all through the New Testament, and that word regulates relationships of authority and submission, whether those relationships are Christians to God the Father himself, as we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9, or James 4, 7, all things in creation being submitted to Christ's lordship, Ephesians 2.22, of Christians to one another, Ephesians 5.21, or the relationship between the wife and her husband, Colossians 8.18. And again, this is a voluntary relationship of equals. And, and Jesus said something great at, at Elder Prayer this morning, an issue of headship and submission. Oh, man, I know it was great. What, um, The issue is not, okay, headship, submission, authority, and submission. The issue is not control, but direction, right? And and submission, the issue is not compliance, but helping you get to the direction you need to go. And I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. And the point here, though, back to our text, is that submission to the appropriate authorities or authority is always God's design, Submission to the appropriate authority is always God's design. There should be nothing shocking about this at all. So when Paul says, I desire a woman to learn quietly in all submission, that just makes sense. Just as if a man is not teaching the Word and he's learning, he ought to learn quietly with all submission to the Word of God being taught. just makes sense. Now, friends, This is where chapter and verse uh, breaks don't help us as well. Immediately after Paul's talking about this, notice in chapter 3, Paul begins to discuss elders, their role, and their authority in the church. Now, in chapter 3, verse 2, the only ability elders are to have is the ability to teach. And what Paul is developing in that section, and we see all in the New Testament, that the elders' authority does not come from themselves, but as they teach the Word of God, they authoritatively lead the church. In other words, elders lead by teaching the Word of God to the people of God, and that is their authority, that is their source of authority, and that's it. So, what you have here, get back to the text in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, when Paul is prohibiting a woman from teaching or having authority over a man, he's basically pointing to the two primary responsibilities that elders are to do in the church. The problem at Ephesus, however, was that the learning that, was, that, the learning that these women were getting, especially from the false teaching here, was causing the women to fight against God's good designs. So interpretively speaking, they're saying, hey, all this stuff, this, th- th- this is historical cultural issues. 
Now in Christ, we have the, 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 the cosmic universal principle that we're all equal, so all distinctions have to be gotten away. Let's, let's take away the mantle of authority and all those things and let us have our place. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 pump the brakes here. That, that, is, that is not the intention here. That is not the intention, and we know that's not the intention because notice where Paul roots the issue of this kind of structure of, of, of elder, men being elders but women not. Look at verses 13 and 14. So he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Why? Here's his reason, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What, what's going on here? You need to see this. Paul is grounding the prohibition in verse 12, not in their historical cultural moment. He is taking it all the way back to when? God's creational order itself. So let me, I'm going to put this on the screen because I want to, this is the, the, the thesis of what I'm saying this morning. So I want you to be, whoops, there it was, that's it. Here it is. The reason Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the reason Paul does not allow a woman to be an elder or have authority over a man is because in God's creational order of making man and woman in his image, he maintains the same functional dynamics that exist in himself in these image bearers of his this is why we have the structure. This is why our gender is not some arbitrary thing we get to decide and, and change it as we feel like. Because our gender is distinctly related to the fact that we are made in His image and have the privilege of displaying that to the world. And though while we are totally equal, totally equal, we're totally different. And that is by God's good design. Friends, um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, the further we get away from the institutions that God ordains and demands reflect His character, which are basically the church and the family, the further we get away from those institutions, the honest, we have to give way more latitude to this. So a woman CEO of a business company, got no scriptural standing on that. It's a matter of wisdom, I think. A woman president, um, yeah, I, I got nothing in scripture that, that mandates against that. It's a matter of wisdom principles. And just so you know, I have had female bosses and served them with integrity and honor and respected them and admired them and followed them. And more importantly, they knew it and they felt it. So what we're talking about here, but are those institutes to reflect the character of God, we're going to double down on this truth. No matter what the world does, no matter what popular churches do, this is what Scripture teaches. It's not a historical cultural issue. Paul roots this prohibition in the creational order itself. The reason that's important is in God's creational order, when He made us in His image, He made us in His image, like God the Father and God the Son. And friends, women, there are, you need to know this, there are many opportunities for women ministry in this church. I mean, you just saw Babette read to us scripture. She teaches, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 women every week, in-depth Bible study. 
There are many opportunities. And look all through the New Testament. We have Aphia, Nympha, Priscilla in Philemon 2, Colossians 4, 1 Corinthians 16. These women hosted uh, churches in their homes. Priscilla, with her husband Aquila, taught Apollos the gospel in a better way. Phoebe was a deaconess, Romans 16. Lydia was foundational to start the Philippian churches. Then you have Iodia and Syncthe in, in Philippians 4, who were co-laborers with Paul in the gospel. So women had vibrant ministry and to this day have vibrant ministry. But to the role of an elder, to the office of the elder or pastor, God maintains his creational design, a reflection of his own character. There it is. The connection now between the women in Ephesus and Eve's mistakes, then, then let's look at verse 14. So Paul roots it in creation. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What, what's going on there? I believe Paul's making a reference to the reality in Genesis 1 through 3 when Eve took the lead in the relationship and displayed that authority. And Adam followed her lead and her authority as the woman in emphasis were now tempted to do. Paul says, no, don't, don't do what Eve did and usurp the way God wanted this to work. That did not turn out well. And you're tempted to do the same thing. Your freedom in Christ is now putting on chains, a different kinds of chains upon you. Which is why in part, Paul, he, he switches out from singling out Eve and then uses the generic word for woman in, the, in that very verse. So he's going, he says, Ephesian women, don't do what Eve did. And then we get to this notoriously difficult verse 15. And I could spend another 10 or 15 minutes trying to give you the various interpretations. And if you're really curious, come see me later and I can talk about that. But here's what Paul is saying. And I need to conclude because we're late. The reference to childbearing here in verse 15. Childbearing is a, is, would you say, the unique womanly trait given by God in creation. If the woman will maintain God's creational design in total by doing so in faith, in love, and holiness with self-control, she will experience salvation not because she bears children, but because she trusts in God's designs, not her own. Just as she trusts God's order and design in creation, if she maintains in faith, hope, love, and self-control, trusting in God's order and recreation and new creation, she will experience salvation. Granted, that is a very clunky way for Paul to write that, but I think that's what he's saying. I think I've made his argument clear here. Friends, let me conclude by saying this. Much of our lives, everyone in this room, circle around these issues of authority and submission. Remember this. In both the way you exercise and submit to authority and submission, you will reveal and learn something about the character of God. And I can't think, friends, of a more counter-cultural church and a more powerful witness to our world than a church where the men display a loving, tender, judicious authority and love, and the women display a glad-hearted, joyful submission and following to that lead. A church where male and female display the very character of God the Father and God the Son in loving community in harmony. Recognizing, friends, if you're having a hard time using your authority, maybe you abuse it, maybe you abdicate it. Um, if you are having a hard time kind of giving submission, you don't have to look further than God himself who modeled both brilliantly for us. 
May God grant us the grace to do both for his glory and each other's good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that your word instructs us us on everything. Father, we pray that we would display your character, your being to this world, even in our maleness and femaleness. We thank you that this is not just an arbitrary thing. It was a luck of the draw that I happen to be born male, my wife female, and that's just the way the cards fall. But no, Lord, you had a design that every man and every woman would reflect who you are to this world. And in bringing us together, that display would bring you glory. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.